Hi everybody, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Caleb. And I'm Andrew. Now, Andrew, this week we are going to be talking about agriculture and how the Native Americans grew their crops, how they gathered and forged, and all of the surprisingly unique and interesting techniques they had to be very successful at it. Now, obviously, this is going to be Iroquoian-focused because based on different parts of North America, different people farmed different ways, but there's a lot of similarities across the board. We've titled this episode The Three Sisters. I think we need to start with basics, Caleb, and explain what the Three Sisters are to the Northeastern Native Americans. Now, the Three Sisters are basically the cornerstone of the food pyramid in your average Iroquois town. They're broken down into three families. You have the maize family, which we know as corn. They had various types of corn. And then they also had beans and squash. And again, many varieties of all of those as well. Why do they call them the Three Sisters? Why not just call them the Three Foods? It really goes back and plays into the the Iroquois creation story. And it's a big, long story, and we're not going to get into it right now. But when Sky Woman descends from the sky world into this earth, and after she passes away, her body begins to decompose, and from it springs corn, beans, and squash from her head. The Iroquois and the other Northeastern peoples that called them the Three Sisters thought of it as they sustain us and work with us, so they're just like a part of our family. That's exactly right. They were basically born from her body. It may have been in a little different way, but they still looked at them like they came from the same person. Another similarity or another kind of unique reason to call them the Three Sisters is not only did they come from the same body, but also the Three Sisters being corns, beans, and squash, they all work together in a symbiotic relationship and actually promote each other for the mutual benefit of all the crops. Why don't you talk about how that worked, Andrew? So you understand what a corn stalk is, right? Corn stalk is a large pole that goes up. And what do beans generally need for support? Usually we put stakes in the ground so that the bean stalks can grow up. Well, the corn kind of acted like that. And so you would plant the beans in with the corn. They would grow up and wrap around and have support. Conversely, beans help draw nitrogen out of the air and it puts it down into the root system. And the corn is able to absorb that nitrogen from the bean root system. As for squash, When we say squash, we're talking about all different kinds from the gourd family, which could be pumpkins and cucumbers and regular squash, butternut squash, acorn squash, any kind of squash you can think of. They have very broad leaves. And so what happens is the leaves end up spreading around and they create a barrier for weeds to come up. And also the leaves help keep moisture in so that the sun isn't evaporating everything off the soil. So just like a family all works together for the mutual benefit of all, the three sisters have this great relationship where one brings nitrogen to the ground, one holds moisture in, while the corn stalk rises above them and gives support for the smaller ones to grow up around them. It really is a great symbolism for how a family works. To give you the whole picture, we need to backtrack and we need to talk about corn, also called maize, because it's actually one of the most amazing inventions in all human history. And you may be thinking to yourself, wait a second, inventions? Nobody ever invented corn. It's a plant. That's not actually true. It was an invention. Corn is a genetically modified organism. Corn does not occur naturally. It is a product of thousands of years of man-made crossbreeding. If you were a scientist, Caleb, are you a scientist? 
Uh, no, I'm, I'm not a scientist. But if you were a scientist, you would tell me that corn is actually a... Grass. Yes. Corn is, belongs to the grass family. And if you look at it, and you look at a blade of grass that's grown and mature, you can kind of see where the similarities are. That's right. If you ever see grass when it grows feral and wild, it actually grows quite tall, sometimes four or five feet high. And when it does, if you look very closely, you may see a very, very, very small piece of grain growing in that, high, in that tall grass. That's not to say that corn is exactly like the grass that we have here in North America, but it's in the same family. What anthropologists have discovered is back, and we're going back thousands of years, to South America there was this type of grass that would grow and it would produce a small ear of grain. We're talking about really small, even smaller than that little baby corn you'll find in your Chinese food, kind of small. But over the years people cultivate it for one reason or another and they'd look at it and they figured out that okay if we plant this big stuff with other big stuff the next year when we plant the seeds it gets a little bit bigger and then that year they take the biggest from those two and plant them together and they just keep doing that over thousands of years now when this first started and they started planting these they were basically just to complement their diet from other things they found just a little snack on the side but over time they ended up being able to grow these corn ears so big that it actually became the cornerstone of their diet. And it's an interesting thing to know. If you look at different civilizations throughout history, what does the main thing that a civilization needs to start getting it kick-started so that they can live in a stable society? Well, that is a great point you bring up, and I believe the answer you're looking for is storable carbohydrates. Yeah, if you look at the Nile River Valley, the Egyptians, they had a special kind of grain that they would use in harvest. You look at the Indian Valley or the, the Yellow River Valley in China, or even us in Europe, we used barley and wheat. And so this became the cornerstone because if you don't have storable carbohydrates that means you don't have food that can be stored year-round and that kind of leaves you on a whim where you have to constantly be roaming around following herds of wild animals or roaming around with your pack cattle and sheep so now that the Native Americans have discovered how to properly I don't want to say properly but you know they invented a way to grow corn so that it can sustain whole villages all of a sudden you're going to see that their population is able to increase because they no longer have to worry about famine, one bad harvest completely uh, wiping out their village through the winter because they'd all starve to death. Or relying on having a bad hunt or not catching a lot of fish. And it allows you to stay in one place for a longer amount of time. And the thing with carbohydrates is when you break them down and dry them, they're basically a pure starch, and they can hypothetically just last not just one season, but they could last several years. If properly stored, carbohydrates could theoretically last for hundreds of years. It's not an understatement when we say how much corn Native Americans grew, right, Caleb? This wasn't like a few rows out in the back garden. We're talking about, for a small village, you could have hundreds of acres of fields of corn. When Henry Hudson was sailing up the Hudson River, he wrote in his journal that he saw a bunch of dry corn being stored on the shore. And he said, there's enough drying here to load three ships, plus everything that still hasn't been harvested in the field. A lot of times, especially when we look at Jamestown and these early English settlers, they were accosted with famine 
and it was the Powhatan Indians gave them a lot of corn as carbohydrates to help keep them up from starving to death with a high enough calorie count. So now that we've talked about what corn is and where it came from and how they made it, uh, let's talk about how they actually grew it, how they cultivated it. Now, women and men, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, were looked at as equal in Iroquois society, but they had very different roles. The men primarily did a lot of the hunting and the fishing, but the farming, that was the women's domain. And when we say domain, it's not like they were forced to do it. It was recognized as their task and responsibility. It's a very different setup than what we have. Here, everybody, we would think, has their own garden plot, or there's one big person that runs all the fields and runs a tractor. There, they have no plows. They have no farming equipment. But you need somebody to organize all this. It was an elected position. We mentioned in our Family Matters episode that clan mothers would elect and appoint men to positions. But the same thing here, they needed to appoint a woman that would be the overseer for the whole town that would be able to organize who goes where and does what and how it's collected and how everything's stored. So it's a very important position in the government. So the women get together, they elect one woman to oversee everything. And then she is also allowed to appoint two assistants or lieutenants to help her organize everything. If you wanted to have a personal garden, that was fine. And generally they'd have a little totem pole set up, which would have a a marking on it, which showed which family this one belonged to. Yeah, when you're thinking about how big their fields were, if there's several hundred acres for their village, these are going to have to be very far away from where they're living. But you don't necessarily want to go a mile away to pick your corn or your squash for the day. So almost every longhouse would have their own smaller garden where they could grow small amounts of fresh crops right outside their house. They did not have metal. They did not have cows. So you could not plow into a field. What they would do is they would take hardwood and make it into like a handle, like a spade, and then maybe attach deer antlers onto the end of a stick. And they would use it kind of like a hoe to overturn the soil just enough to loosen it up. And then what you would do is you would take the corn seeds and you would plant them in a circle in that hole that you've just dug up. And then As the corn is growing up just a little bit, they would plant the beans after that because you don't want the beans growing faster than the corn because the corn needs to support the beans and beans grow a little bit faster. So they had the timing down to science where they knew exactly what time of year to plant one and then plant the other so they don't all start competing for the same light or the same nutrients. They can work together and support each other. Now, another interesting technique they had is after they would plant the corn seed, and it would grow just a couple inches, they would then come back and push dirt over the seed, over the stalk, which makes you wonder, why would they do that? Well, there's two reasons. One, it gives them a little bit more ground to support the root system. And secondly, especially if you're planting early in the season, it's going to cover up that little bit of green to prevent it from frost that could come early in the year. That's true. Traditionally, you always want to wait until the last frost is over, which usually in the New York area could be mid-May or sometimes even late May. But using this technique, you can start several weeks earlier and get a jump start on your crop and then you just throw a little dirt around each stalk and your corn is several weeks ahead of the current methods for farming. And the way that they did this is you could start the fields planting in mid-April and harvest by mid-June 
and you could rotate around because it's just people. You can't plant everything at once. So if you have a rotating system going, you could start harvesting in mid-June. And then if you've planted seeds every few weeks all the way through, you could be harvesting all the way into October. Once the corn and beans are established, then you plant the squashes last. And we mentioned before there would be cucumbers, pumpkins, summer squash, and even watermelons, but those came along post-European contact. And they, the leaves, once they get going, they just spread everywhere. So you want to make sure that the corn and beans are established before you get those going. Because the point of it is to choke out the weeds and you don't want it choking out the plant you're trying to grow. Now you mentioned, Andrew, that this wasn't looked at like it was slave labor. It was something they all dreaded. This is something that the women especially enjoyed doing together. This was their way of socializing. It wasn't like they were going out doing backbreaking labor. This was how they would hang out with all their friends and, and talk you know, town gossip and things like that. You could sing songs. And um, Mary Jemison, who was uh, a white woman who was raised by the Seneca Nation, she mentions that she never dreaded doing the work. She said that she rather enjoyed it. She loved socializing. And she said at the end of every day, we'd go down to the water and take a swim. But on top of just growing the crops and harvesting them, this actually gave the women a little more stature in the village than the men because without the women doing this the whole village would go hungry this pound for pound was significantly more than the men would bring in hunting so this really made the men of the village respect the women now i'm trying to picture this caleb we've got maybe a hundred or more acres of corn and other vegetables and probably a good distance from the village you don't have carts, you don't have tractors, you don't have wheelbarrows. How are you getting all of this stuff back to where it needs to go? They actually had a pretty interesting piece of technology they invented for transporting this. And if you looked at it in a picture, it would basically look like a frame pack that a mountain hiker would have. It was a, a woven basket on their back with loops, most likely woven from corn husk leaves, in a big basket, and they would pick the corn and then just toss it over their shoulder into the basket on their back. And they could carry 50 pounds of corn in one of these baskets. Now once you get the corn back up to the area and they get it all harvested into a pile, you've ever bought corn on the side of a road. It's not like you just hang it up right away and dry it. You have to what they call husk it or shuck it. You have to get these leaves off the cob of the corn. That's right. Uh, today, a lot of us picture eating corn. Basically, we eat the soft raw corn is basically what's very popular today. You know, we cook it, we eat it soft with butter and salt. But they ate it different. They used it more like a grain where they would dry it out and using a process, uh, make it into flour. So in order to do that, you first need to husk it. You've all done that. You buy it at the side of the road and you pull all the, the leaves back, get the hair off. Now you wouldn't rip all the leaves off. You would just pull them to the back of the corn. Because you need the leaves so that you can string it through to hang it up to dry. Yeah. So then what you could do is take two and tie them together and then hang them over a pole and there would be one on each side of the pole. But you could do it with dozens, tie dozens together and just have hundreds of pounds of corn going down the line. So what they would do is they would kind of have shucking bees, you know, quilting bees where everybody gets together and does one part of a quilt. This is where you get everybody in the village together at night, sitting around the campfire outside, and everybody's doing it together. And again, they made it into a game. Sometimes you find odd things when you pull corn apart. Sometimes you could pull it open and maybe it didn't get fertilized and there's nothing there. 
or maybe there could be some kind of deformity and all the kernels are swollen. Or you get there and there's only like three at the bottom and the rest of it is bare. And so they would give out prizes for the most unique thing or the one that was a total dud as they were going. And this was a pretty fun game to play because if you can picture a husking tens of thousands of ears of corn could probably get pretty boring. But if you make it into a game where everybody's watching for a unique piece of corn and then you get congratulated by your whole longhouse and given a small prize. And the faster you do it, the more likely you are to find something interesting and get that prize. So, so it adds to the efficiency of it as well. You can take a, a relatively boring task and make it into a lot of fun. Uh, the women would even sometimes be able to entice entice or encourage the men to participate in this too. Generally, the men saw this as women's work, but it was kind of this one kind of cat and mouse game where they would say, come on over, you can help too. Oh no, it's not our job. Oh, but we've got soup for you. Come and sit down and it'll be fun. And they go, okay, okay, we'll sit down. And then they get into it and have fun too. Again, it's building the whole village culture around this event. Many Europeans pointed out that when they came and saw how much corn was stored, they would see that they would have three or four years of the corn hanging in the house left over. Why would they plant more than they need? It seems like that would just be extra work. Well, just like we mentioned, this dried corn can last several years. They have a responsibility, as we've mentioned in the clan system, where certain clans are responsible for looking out for other clans if something bad, if, if they are in a time of mourning. Clans would grow extra that way if somebody else didn't have enough, even from a further town away. They or would, a nation. Yes, even a, a nation hundreds of miles away, they could then gift them enough so that they could get through. And it would be expected if it ever happened to them, likewise, that would happen. Now, well, I want to go into a kind of detail here about corn. Caleb alluded to that they ground it into powder. It was not eaten like our sweet corn. In fact, you couldn't eat it. It was inedible. It, you would not be able to digest it at all. Sometimes Indian corn is called white corn. And first it has to be put through a process called lying. That's not where you tell false things about it. But lye is a chemical found naturally in there. Sometimes we find it in limestone, but it's also primarily found in ash, wood ash. So it's a very complicated process, and I'm just going to break it down as simply as possible to understand over a podcast where you can't visualize this. But they would take the potash, and they would mix it together with the corn. It would cause a chemical reaction, which would cause the outer shell of the corn, individual kernels, to separate. If you use too much lye, it could destroy the corn. If you use too little, it wouldn't do the job and separate. Uh, once you got that done, there was another process that you would go through and you could either separate it out and actually grind it up with a stone or something or a, a mallet and grind it into powder, or you could instantly convert it into like a dough to instantly bake some kind of bread or cake with it. So it was primarily used for baking, not for eating, which uh, probably also makes sense because they didn't have flossers. And I, I can just imagine how much stuff you'd get in between your teeth if you were just eating the corn that way. So I think that the, the flour is definitely the way to go. Other than eating, what were other uses for corn, Caleb? The Native Americans tended to find really good uses for the most minuscule things, and corn was no substitute. We just think of it as a food, but they had a lot of other uses for it. A big one was they could use the leaves for it to make baskets and clothing and dolls was a big one. You can still go and look on eBay and find 
several hundred-year-old Iroquois dolls they would make for their kids to play with. They would even weave it and make sleeping mats or baskets or just about anything else you can possibly think of. you got to remember, before European contact, they didn't really have cloth. So they had to either use leather or they could weave things like corn husks. That's not to say that they actually had dresses made out of corn stuff, (laughs) corn leaves or anything like that, but accessory items. Now, how nutritious could this diet possibly be, Caleb? Now, it's funny you ask that, Andrew, because when the colonists first started coming over and they were meeting these Native Americans, obviously we all know that uh, a lot of the Native Americans grew sick due to European diseases that they'd never been exposed to. But a lot of people noticed how healthy the Native Americans were and how tall they were and how muscular they were and how as far as common colds and things like that, the Native Americans didn't really seem to get them much. And a very in particular thing that the Native Americans almost never got was a disease called scurvy. Now the reason they never got that is because they had enough vitamin C in their diet. And you will see that with all the things that the Native Americans hunt and fish and grow, they basically have the perfect balanced diet. Think about it this way, Andrew. You have your corn for your carbohydrates. Then you have your beans. What are beans filled with? They've got tons of protein. Tons of protein. And to supplement that, you've also got red meat from deer and protein from fish. And then you have your uh, squashes. Squashes. All kinds of varieties, which again have a lot of vitamins and a lot of carbohydrates and even some protein in it as well. And then on top of that, they're going out there and they're gathering berries and nuts. Uh, So they basically have all the food groups on a daily basis, which the Europeans at the time didn't have anything. At this time, if you were in Europe, you could afford bread at the end of the day or a small vegetable garden, which would only be available in season and you didn't really store much of it. And then if you did have money, you were very susceptible to gout because a lot of the Europeans, if they had money, they would just eat meat and drink ale all the time. Even though they're eating delicious foods, they're not having the balanced diet like the Native Americans. The three sisters were not the only thing they grew, obviously. It's not the only thing you would grow in your garden. That was the base of their diet, but there was a lot of other stuff that they had as well. There was peas, sumac sprouts, wild asparagus. In addition, they also used fruit trees, uh, especially plums and apples. Now, when you say they used fruit trees, they actually had their own way of almost having orchards. They wouldn't necessarily clear 100 acres and plant all plum trees, but they did have a special technique in doing it, and that's you find a plum tree, and then you basically clear everything around it so that you just leave the fruit trees, and by doing that, you let them drop their apples or plums or whatever and then start to grow more, and then you just continue to weed out all the trees that aren't fruit trees, and then you kind of naturally, from the wild, have your own orchard. And they would do this not only with fruit, but also with lots of nut trees. Other fruit trees they eventually got was even uh, peaches, which again were introduced from the Colombian exchange when Europeans brought it over, and even apples. The apples in America are a much smaller, more crab apple type, but they had these whole orchards, and there were even wild grapes that again were sour. Caleb's right, these orchards got huge, and in 1779, when Sullivan came through during the Revolutionary War and burned all these Seneca and Cayuga towns, one Cayuga village had over 1,500 fruit trees. That just gives you an idea of how big this kind of stuff was. In addition to trees, they harvested a lot of stuff from berry bushes. That's right, and there were several different types of berries that grow native here in uh, the New York Northeast area. 
cranberries, mulberries, strawberries, huckleberries, blueberries. One of the main things that they would grow, Caleb, was black raspberries. And this kind of had a dual purpose. Not only could you eat it, but you could use it for something else as well. That's right. For all of you that have ever tried to pick blackberries or raspberries, you will know that they are a thorny bush. And thorny bushes can be a big pain if you're trying to pick a berry, but they can also be very useful uh, in keeping intruders out of your garden, such as uh, rabbits, squirrels, and things like that. It was common practice where you could do a hedge of thorn bushes around your gardens to help deter animals. But then even on a bigger scale, you could do palisaded walls around your village and actually plant and supplement wild raspberry bushes growing around just to add that extra protection thorny brambles mixed all around palisaded walls. Now they had their own techniques for harvesting fruits and uh, like we said you need to find a way to get this to last as long as you can so they had techniques to do that and one of them was to basically take these raspberries or these other wild fruits and you would kind of mush them into a paste and then you could take a bark sheet basically take this paste and spread it relatively thin and then dried in the sun or close to a fire. Then you basically have this raspberry cake that's dried and you can store it for several months. Cool thing about this is the vitamin C stays in it even once it's dried. So you can then take little bits of these cakes and in the winter mix, mix a couple chunks in with your corn flour. And just like that, you've got a pretty tasty cornbread with raspberries in it. And it pumps more vitamin C into you during the winter when you're not getting that. Another cool trick that they would use sometimes was especially the melons. If it was getting towards the end of the year and they still had some melons that were growing and they weren't quite ready to be picked yet, they would dig down, grab the roots, put the vine in a basket and bring it back to the longhouse, set it up there in the basket and let it continue to grow up along the wall and then you could still pick and use it. And a lot of times they would even use it for medicinal purposes to help somebody that was sick that needed that vitamin C infusion to help them get better. The forests of New York are totally different than they were 100 years ago and even more so than 400 years ago, Caleb. And this is really complicated and sad and interesting all at the same time. A lot of the colonists, when they came here, they noted on how many nut trees they were here. And if, if you go out, I'll, most of us could probably find a black walnut tree, or maybe if we're lucky, a hickory tree. But at the time, the forests of the Northeast were just covered in nut trees. Everything from oaks to get your acorns and beech nuts, black walnuts, butternuts, chestnuts hickory nuts, hazelnuts. One nut on here kind of stands out and that's the chestnut. And we all picture roasting chestnuts on an open fire, the, the Christmas carol we have. That's actually talking about an English chestnut. But there was actually a tree native to North America known as the American chestnut. Other name that it was known as was the redwoods of the east because many of these nut trees and especially the American chestnut trees grew to be massive behemoths over a hundred feet tall and so wide that you could not even stretch your arms across them. Yes, yeah, some of these mature trees could be 15 feet across. And how common were these trees? In, in uh, certain areas of the Northeast, you're looking at about one out of every four trees. 25% of all of the trees was this huge, massive American chestnut tree. They estimate that there could have been 4 billion 
American chestnut trees in North America at the time. Now, these American chestnut trees, they had a, a much smaller chestnut, but it was edible, and uh, they just dropped them in huge numbers. You could go out and you could pick up, you know, picture a drywall bucket full of uh, nuts, you know, in 20 minutes of looking on the ground. Uh, sadly, though, these trees are almost all but gone, and that is due to a, a, an Asian fungus blight that came through in the early 20th century, right in the early 1900s, and it moved very quickly. It came in, I believe, through, uh, through New York City. Probably through some Chinese import-export deal. Yeah, they think it could have come maybe around 1870, but by 1900 is when it really picked up. And by the 1950s, they were all gone. Even still to this day, uh, you will see that some American chestnut trees will grow up as saplings and they'll die within a couple of years because the fungus is still around and kill them. So they're technically extinct, even though they're not fully extinct. It's just you can't grow them anywhere without them dying. Yeah, the ones that you see grow up are young and they're actually offshoots of roots that are underground. So that's why it's kind of tricky because they want to say that they're extinct, but you can still go out and see them. And we actually have one on our, our uncle's property in western New York, he has an American chestnut, and it's the only one I've ever seen in my life. And so scientists are trying to find ways to splice the genes to make them immune to the fungus, and maybe someday we'll see a comeback. But it, it really is amazing to think that the forests were totally different, and these nut trees were not grown just naturally like that. Native Americans made that way on purpose because they had a technique, and that was fire. That's right, Andrew. They would use fire as a, as a means to clear new fields. They would generally do this once all the crops had been harvested for the year. Think about early fall when you've got all those dry leaves starting to fall on the ground and the winter rains haven't started coming yet. You could burn the forest then. A lot of the green leaves would already be down uh, and turn brown, which would make the fire spread a lot faster. This is how they would clear their land kind of had a two-prong approach in the fact that these fires not only cleared the land, but they also gave the ground a very quick shot of nutrients, which would just make the, the gardens explode the following year as far as their growth. And you didn't have to worry about getting rid of all that dead stuff underneath when you tilled the soil the following year. Another added benefit was all these massively huge nut trees would survive this fire. The fires would just kind of spring up and spread out real quick, and these hardwood, strong, centuries-old giants would last just fine. And it ended up getting rid of all the young saplings. And so when the Europeans came through, they thought that they were in a park. Just the way that the trees were all well-maintained and just nice little green grass underneath. Yeah, they said that you could look through the forest from one end to another just because all the undergrowth was gone. And it was just these massive nut trees with no undergrowth. They said that you could take a carriage and drive through the woods because there was that much space in between to get through. And they all thought it happened naturally, but no, it was actually due to the Iroquois burning their fields. When white settlers started coming through and setting up their homesteads, they became rather annoyed by it because all of a sudden, 
It would be one fine, crisp fall evening, and you'd look out and the whole sky would be red, and they'd be burning everything. Henry Hudson again said when he was coming up and down the river, he said that it seemed like both sides were a glow and we were going through a tunnel. So this is going to cause a lot of conflict. A couple hundred years down the road as you start to see more and more settlers coming and settling on the East Coast, because uh, this is the way not only did they farm, but also they would use this burning technique to drive large amounts of deer and wildlife in for hunting. I enjoy a good waffle, Caleb, and I will only eat a waffle with real maple syrup on it. Could you explain to me, who doesn't know exactly how the process works, how we get maple syrup? Well, Andrew brings this up because it was the Native Americans that first discovered that you can tap a tree not just for the, the sap for making pitch that certain trees actually had sweet sap this is unique just to the northeast and especially canada and there's a reason for that and that's that trees hibernate just like animals did you know that andrew yes i did uh maple trees especially what they do uh, before winter is they build up a lot of starch sugar and this sugar ferments into alcohol, which works as an antifreeze in the tree. And that's how the tree does not get frostbitten. Why do pine trees not lose their needles? Because of all of the alcohol, all of the sap that's in them works as an antifreeze. So when these maple trees go into a cold winter, they have all the sugar that they make into alcohol. But then when spring comes, all of this alcohol and syrup has been inside the tree fermenting and becoming pure sugar so all you have to do is put a notch in the tree and then all of this sugar starts to come out and the maple tree is notorious for having some of the sweetest syrups so what they would do is they would cut a little hole in the tree stick a little stick in like a dowel and then place a pot underneath it or a gourd and it would slowly drip and then you had a large collection of this sweet water now the maple syrup we know today is uh, very concentrated due to uh, boiling. They put it in huge 50-gallon drums, and it's something like it takes 50 gallons to get one gallon of that syrup. Uh, but like Andrew said, this, they didn't boil it like we do today. Theirs was uh, not quite as syrupy. It was almost more like a liquidy sweetness. But they had their own technique for concentrating it to an extent, and that was through evaporation. They could put it in this bin or, or this uh, bowl, and wait a couple days and all of the moisture would evaporate out and then they could pour more in and they just keep doing that with evaporation and before you know it they have not quite to the extent uh, that we have maple syrup today but they did have this sweet syrup sounds delicious did they have their own waffles you know what would probably be good i mentioned the cornbread with the blueberries in it make a pancake out of that with some Iroquois maple syrup and that sounds pretty good to me it does Another plant that was very common that they used was the sunflower. Yeah, I actually didn't know that the sunflower was native to North America. Completely. Uh, and the sunflower, not only do you get meat from its seeds, but those seeds are very uh, rich in oil, much like a nut. And so what they would end up doing is taking these seeds and throwing them into a pot with a bit of water and boiling them. And what happens is, you know that oil and water don't mix, right? So as the seed is being boiled, the oil inside rises up out of the seed husk and goes on top. And then they can skim the oil off and store it. And this is what they use for many different uses, but especially for cooking and frying. This technique could be used with a lot more than just sunflower oil. They could do this with nuts as well. Nuts also have a very high fat content, and uh, you can very easily mash them all up into a bin 
and just boil them until you get a thin layer of oil and every single time the oil rises up they just skim it across and they had a great way of uh, storing it too. They would take a dried out gourd, you know, like you always see people make maracas out of. You poke a little hole in it, get the seeds out of there, and then you just drain the oil into it and then put a little plug in it and you've got this nice little gourd filled with oil that you can use for cooking. They had other uses for it. You could use it for certain medicinal purposes. You could use it as a sunscreen, a moisturizer, leather softener, brightener. Sunflowers were used so much that sometimes the sunflower uh, plant is called the fourth sister. Oh, it no was that, that common that they would have it growing in the three sisters gardens. How do you store all this stuff, Caleb? I mean, where do you put all this stuff? If you've got four years worth of foods that you've been saving up and harvesting, where's it all going to go? That's a great question, Andrew. And you were going to find that they put this anywhere and everywhere that they could. There's a lot of early paintings of longhouses with the whole Iroquois clan family in the longhouse. And you'll see going down the rafters of the longhouse, it's just chalk fold with this corn. Like we said, tie, the husks tied together and just on long poles all the way through the rafters of the whole thing. But even that was not enough space to store all the corn and these other crops. They also made silos. You wouldn't think of it like a silo that we see today. It was on an elevated platform, so kind of like an old school water tower kind of deal. And it would be raised up and made with bark around the sides and have a top on it. But you know that food can go kind of bad if it gets wet. So what are you going to do if it gets wet? I mean, when you put it in, it's going to have moisture in it. It's amazing some of the techniques that they've come up with through trial and error, I'm sure over hundreds of years, but they actually discovered that using blue stem grass and lining all the way around the storage bin, this grass somehow, through some chemical reaction, keeps mold from growing on the food. So they would line the whole storage pit or the whole silo with it. In addition to that, they would also poke holes in the side of the silo to keep air flowing through in and out so that uh, moisture didn't accumulate. Not only did they have raised silos, but they also had what I like to call refrigerator pits. They would dig holes outside of their houses, and sometimes even inside of their houses, and they would do the same thing. They would line these holes with the bark around the sides and on the bottom, and they would put this grass in as well, this mold-resistant grass. And they could store all kinds of things, including gourds and beans and corn, and sometimes even charring the corn so that it would last longer. They could dig several of these pits and fill them up. When Arthur Parker, he's a renowned Iroquois anthropologist and one of the first people to help get the Rochester Museum and Science Center done, and he was one of the first people to start going through and excavating these uh, Iroquoian towns, especially Ganondagan. And when they dug down and actually discovered these pits, they excavated and opened them up and they found charred corn still buried down inside it. And this is two to three hundred years after the fact. Yeah, when we said that uh, dried corn can, dried carbohydrates can last a long time, we weren't kidding. The interesting thing with these underground storage pits is they could cover them up if need be. We're going to see that if an enemy comes through and wipes the village out, everybody flees. All of this corn is still there, even 200 years later. It's buried treasure. More valuable than treasure because it's gold you can eat.
Now that's all well and good to store stuff, Caleb, but I know that rodents get everywhere. So how did they keep rats out of all of this corn that they had in these silos and up in the longhouses? I've been wondering that, Andrew, and I had to really dig to find out how the heck do you keep rats and mice and squirrels out of the corn? And the first answer is that some of you may be surprised, but the rat, as we know it today, is actually not native to North America. There was not a rat in all of North and South America until the 1400s when they came over on ships from Europe. They're originally from uh, Asia, they think, and they worked their way down into Europe and then onto their ships and into North America. So they didn't have the problem with these blights of diseased rats running around until after European contact. But they did have mice, and they did have squirrels. And mice and squirrels, as you can picture, really like corn, I bet, especially on a cold winter day when there's not much to eat. So how do you keep these rodents from getting into your huge water tower? I mean, if you ever picture them getting into your bird feeder, picture that, but a, a bird feeder that holds 50 tons of food. And they did have some pretty interesting techniques to do it. One of them was, like we said, you could do like thorn uh, walls kind of around your storage facility. But a mouse can get through that. Yeah, a mouse can. A squirrel would probably be a little deterred by uh, spikes or a rabbit, something like that. Uh, but how do you keep the mice out? And this was a pretty ingenious way to do it that I wouldn't have thought of, but a wind chime. A wind chime? Yeah, it might not be like a musical wind chime, but basically they had a technique where they could put a spike in the ground or many spikes all around your food silo, and then you could just take a piece of cord and tie a stick to it so it would blow in the wind and keep banging on the stick all day long, all the way around the, the corn silo. And that way any mice would constantly be seeing movement and hearing loud noises, and it would deter a lot of them from going to the silo. Well, that works. So they invented the first security system. Well, first squirrel-slash-mouth security system, anyway. In another telling of the Sky Woman story, we mentioned that the Sky Woman from her head grew the three sisters' corn, beans, and squash. But also in the story, it mentions that from her heart grew another plant, and that plant is tobacco. And we can't talk about Native American culture without talking about tobacco because it's integral not only in their society and culture, but it also shares a religious aspect and even a diplomatic aspect when they're doing councils or negotiating treaties. But let's just talk about the plant itself. The Latin name is Nicotania tabacum. It's been used in all kinds of prayer ceremonies and Thanksgiving celebrations for thousands of years. Usually it was cultivated in the small family gardens, not in these massive plantations which you probably think of when colonials end up coming around. Now I think it's important to point out, Andrew, that the tobacco that they grew and they used for smoking and for their ceremonies was not the tobacco that we think about today. Yeah, it was a slight... There's actually 80 different varieties of tobacco, and so the one that the colonials grew was a slightly different variation. And in comparison, uh, a lot of people said that the European tobacco that they grew was a much more mild tobacco, as opposed to the, the native tobacco, which was a much stronger tobacco, a lot more flavor, and supposedly a lot more aroma. They used tobacco, obviously, for smoking, but they would also use it as burning like kind of an incense when they were doing celebrations or remembrance things or even if you wanted to go as far as an offering to the Great Spirit. Sometimes they would mix it with other herbs into in, their pipes. 
it was often just a regular pastime when people were sitting around you'd whip out your pipe and put a little bit tobacco in it and just sit there and smoke and relax. It's kind of interesting to note that the way that they smoked is not like the way we smoke today. I know a lot of smokers, I work with some, and it's every 15 minutes they need a a puff of tobacco all day long. But that's not how the Native Americans did it. This was, you know, at the end of the day you get home and you sit down and you'd have a you'd have a pipe of tobacco. It wasn't an addiction where they needed it all day. They looked at this as a social thing and also a way to relax after a hard day's work and also a way to, you know, we all hear the term, the peace pipe. If you smoked with someone, you became their friend. This was a a social way of showing friendship. They would literally do this at diplomatic negotiations where they would take a pipe and pass it around and everybody have a huff of it. And it would build community with everyone else. Tobacco is not good for us white people. The way that we get tobacco today is it's rolled up into a little cigarette and they add all these chemicals into it to get it into molded in that shape and give it that flavor and allow it to be inhaled a certain way. And it kills us. It's interesting that they've done studies for people that have a much pure Native American DNA, if I could say it that way. And lung cancer was actually almost completely uncommon with them. So it's kind of amazing to think that these people that uh, have this stereotype of uh, smoking tobacco and lung cancer was almost unheard of. And there's a lot of factors in that. One is probably genetic because they've been doing it for thousands of years. And then secondly, there weren't all those harmful chemicals inside it. And then also, like I said, they didn't smoke constantly all day long like a smoker might smoke today. This was just uh, a way to relax at the end of the day. Interesting note, tobacco, unlike all of the other crops, was not grown by the women of the village. Well, who was it grown by? Honey badgers. Who do you think? The the man grew it. (laughs) If the women didn't grow it, who else would? Uh, It was primarily a men's job of growing it and cultivating it, which I find it it just seems like that would be the one thing that they would grow, of course. Now, originally, Andrew and I thought that we would uh, try and get into all things food on the Iroquois, everything from their farms to hunting and fishing, and we realized that there was just no way that we could fit all that in the one episode. So I hope you all join us next week where we're going to go into hunting and fishing. We're going to talk about all their ingenious methods of capturing hundreds if not thousands of pounds of fish and game in single hunts. It it really is remarkable and I guarantee that you've never heard of half the stuff that we're going to talk about next time. So please tune in. Also, I wanted to let you know that uh, we do have a Facebook page. You can search for us, Iroquois History and Legends Podcast. We'd love it if you could like us there. We also have an email address, longhousepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and we always respond to our messages. We are also on just about every podcast hosting site you can find, iTunes, Android, Stitcher, the list goes on and on. Another thing that we would really love is if you have an iTunes account, please log in and write us a positive review about the show because that really encourages Apple to bump us in the ratings so that we can be seen by more people and share the wonderful culture of the Six Nations with the world. Also, if we see people write nice stuff about us, we'll try a little harder. Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you next week.